Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I'm just kidding. Whatever. So we're in Philippians chapter 2, and uh, most of you are very familiar with the passage in Philippians chapter 2. So let's just um, quickly read uh, all the verses, okay? And, uh, he, and so now Bill had already you know, given us a, a really good intro uh, to this passage. And uh, he says, but Paul is starting here and he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Father, thank you for this passage. We know we've heard it many, many times, but your mercies are new every morning, Lord. And you are able to certainly to speak to us uh, through this text, even though we've, you know, we've heard it. I've heard it. We've heard it taught so many times, Gail or one and others. But, Lord, you have something fresh for us today. And we pray, Lord, that you know we're uh, some of us are tired. We've had a long work week. We've had a, a lot to eat. <laughs> but uh, g- give us the grace, Lord, to give our attention to you, to set aside any kind of apprehensions or um, anxieties that we might have. And listen to what you would say to your people today, because we know you have our best in mind and you want us to grow in you. So we thank you in Jesus' name for all these things. Amen. So Paul, as we know from reading this, he was in a first century Roman prison. Now, if you want to keep this in your context, he was in prison writing this. And, and this, was a, this was a primitive old prison. It wasn't prisons like we have today with weight rooms and internet and rehabilitation classes and this kind of thing. Okay, this is a pretty crude and rude situation. And many people probably, even believers, probably thought that Paul probably deserved to be in prison. If you go and read some of his other letters, like 2 Corinthians and that, there were people who disputed his apostleship. They, Paul had critics. Paul had people that didn't like him, even among the believers, not just among the Judaizers and the Jews. But there were you know, some Christians that got into false doctrine and would listen and say, well, I'm of Peter and I'm of Apollos. And others would say, well, I'm above it all. I'm of Jesus. You know, I, I don't listen to any of you guys. You know? but, so some people probably thought Paul deserved even to be in prison. Other disciples were discouraged by the fact that Paul was in prison, okay? Uh, they were probably discouraged that such an unfair misfortune could happen to God's servant. But amazingly, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul was able to keep his wits about him, not only for himself, but also for the sake of the others who were worried and confused by his situation. Now, you got to remember, Paul was not writing to a group of generic people. Okay, he wasn't just like some of us, you know, we get online and we put something on the Internet or a blog or an Instagram and we don't know who's going to see it. Right. He's writing to family. You have to go back to like Acts chapter 16 and remember when Paul was arrested in Philippi. Remember that story? Remember he and and Silas were in jail and they were beaten and they and they sang and and worshiped the Lord. And that's when the, the Lord miraculously opened the jail and who cleaned their wounds but the Philippian jailer. Remember? And he thought he was going to die because because his prisoners had escaped. And Paul ran out, no, 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 don't hurt yourself. We're okay. And Paul actually submitted himself to the situation. Think about that. If it would have been one of us and the door was open, we'd say, thank you, Lord, I'm out of here, right? But he didn't. He, 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 he was concerned about this man. And the man was the one who famously said, what must I do to be saved? 
And then we know his, Paul's answer to him was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house. So when Paul is writing Philippians, it's not just to a generic group of people. These are folks that he remember. This is the man who had actually cleaned his wounds and taken him home. And Paul had prayed with their family to, to, to become believers. So, so this is a very personal thing that Paul is writing. And I, I sincerely believe that Paul would write these things because other people were worried about him. And you see back in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, Paul was writing. It was another one of his prison epistles that he wrote. And he said in Ephesians 3.13, he says, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Because, you know, when you see a, you know, he, he's their leader, he's their pastor, he's, 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 he's one who had a great influence in them, and you see something happen to him, and you, they think, well, what are we going to do now? If that happens to Paul, what's going to happen to us? And, you know, is there a future for this thing called the church? And we're just new into this, you know? And, and, and so they were worried about Paul, but Paul said, don't worry about me. And he, he knew that God was using his situation and that's part of our, our, our lesson today in our text is that Paul knew God was using his current prison situation to minister to these friends of his, okay? And many of us, we, we have trouble with that, and we're going to get into it, okay, here. But Paul opens up this text here, and he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, notice there that the word let, okay, that is an act of the will. I mean, you have to allow this to happen, okay? And he, the, in the Greek, if you, if you go look at it, and I, I was down in Atlanta this week for the Midwest, the Deep South Conference, and one of the pastors says, I was over in Serbia, and we were teaching in Serbia. And we asked the people, how, do you, how, do, how are you enjoying the teaching? And, and how are you enjoying this? And, and the, the, one of the Serbian leaders says, well, I'm frustrated because the... the uh, the preacher always says, in Greece it means this. And then he says, we're not in Greece, we're in Serbia. We don't care what it means in Greece. You know, that she didn't understand, you know, that it was written in the Greek. But in the Greek here, the words let and mind are combined into one phrase. Okay? So you are allowing your mind. You are permitting your mind. You are, you are if you will, forming your own mindset. And how many of you know we have to get a grip on our own thoughts, right? Amen. You have to. So he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So when we let something happen, it means we allow that to happen. It means we don't resist it happening. Because God wants you to have the mind of Christ. So we can't resist it. We can't fight it. And we can't just, you know, be in church one day and then run over here to the world the next day or get on the Internet another day and then be at work and get into that policy or whatever we grew up with or whatever our background is. We have to let... This mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Okay? So, I looked at that as a new believer, and I said, well, how in the world do I get the mind of Christ? How many of you guys watched the Star Trek movies 20 years ago? Remember the one where Spock died? Remember that one? Who saw the one where Spock died? Right? A few of you did, okay? And there's this scene where Spock is dying, right? And he knows he's dying. But what does he do? He goes over to Bones, to the doctor, and he puts the Vulcan mind meld on him, right? And he transfers the mind of Spock into Bones, right? And then in the next movie, Bones is coming around and says, Jim, I got Spock in my head. Everywhere I got Spock, he, he, you know, he put his mind in me. And, and it's this big thing where Spock had actually transferred his mind over into the doctor. And in many ways, uh, that's a silly 
analogy, and if you never saw the movie, I'm sorry. But, but you think about it, but Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has given us the mind of Christ. Okay? So, so there's this thing that happens when we receive him and we receive his spirit, that he gives us his spirit. Okay? But there's something a little, if I can say a little more, I don't want to say more practical, but it's a little more tangible, if I can say it that way, for some of us who get a, I had a hard time getting a grip on things. I don't know about you guys, but coming into, they, they'd use all this language about being a Christian and say, you've got to walk in the spirit. And I go, well, what does that look like? You know, you got to get the mind of Christ. And I go, well, how in the world do I do that? Well, there's some ways for us to know. And I want us to, if, if you got your Bible, I will make a couple of references to some other passages, and you don't have to go there. But in Romans 12, Paul writes, and you, I know you, you know this passage. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Okay, your bodies, everything about you, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we can receive the mind of Christ by allowing the word of God to transform our minds. So somebody might say, well, okay, so Paul says again in Philippians, he says, let this mind be in you. And we might say, well, I can't read Jesus' mind, but you can. You can read Jesus' mind by reading his word. Okay? Because we know that the scripture says, in the beginning was what? The word. the word. Now, that doesn't mean in the beginning was the Bible. Okay? It doesn't mean that in the beginning was the parchment and the ink. In the beginning was the logos, the mind of God the thoughts of God, the intentions of God, okay? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the very Word of God became flesh and walked among us, right? And Jesus, the Scripture also calls Him the living Word. So if you want to know the mind of Christ, and you can read the mind of Christ by getting into His Word, and he will renew your mind. And, I'm, and I talk to Christians all the time, all the time. They don't know what to do. And I say, are you reading your Bible? What is, they'll say, Pastor Chris, what does the Bible say about this? Or, or they'll say, what should I do about this? And I'll say, well, what does the Bible say? And they'll go, uh, they don't know. They can tell me sports stats. They can recite rock lyrics from the 80s, or in my case, the 60s. Okay. <laughs> You know, movie lines, you know, what this politician said, what's going on over here. But none of that stuff is going to help us get through our issues and our challenges like knowing the Word of God and having our minds renewed by the Word of God. We have to. We have to. Barry McGuire, when he said people come around and say, you Christians, you're all brainwashed. And he'd say, yeah, that's right. He said, my brains needed a good scrub. He said, I had some dirty old brains, and, and they needed to be washed. And, and the scripture tells us that God washes us with what? The water of his word. Those, yeah, the word of God is what washes us and changes us. So this is how we can know the mind of Christ by, ha- by having ourselves renewed by the word of God. 1 Corinthians 2 is another great passage where he says, 
Uh, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Yes, is the question. Who has known? But we have the mind of Christ. And where do we have the mind of Christ? In the Word of God, in the Scriptures. So if we will spend time with the Word of God, we will learn what Christ is like. Listen, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I, for I make him lowly of heart, right? Well, he's not going to come to Princeton or Athens and walk around with you. You can spend time walking at his pace, in his word, fellowshipping with his people, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, edifying one another with real edification. Okay, And he will change us along the way because he's given us the mind of Christ that we can know these things. So back to Philippians here. And I know I'm interjecting some other scriptures, but I, but I think they're all relevant. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, I think if you have a King James Bible, it says he did not consider uh Equality with God as something to be grasped, I think is what it says, okay? And what what this means, and that's a kind of an unusual phrase for us to think about, but it says when Jesus came here and walked the earth, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It means it, he didn't think that it was something that he needed to grasp after or strive after or for something for him to covet. And, and I've said this to, to our church several times, but... You know, you've got the Ten Commandments, right? You know, don't steal, don't, you know, bear false witness, all these kind of things. But the last one to me is the punchline when it says you shall not covet. Because if I take the name of the Lord in vain, you can hear me, right? If I steal, you can see me. If I do any of those things, you can watch me do it. But if I covet, that's in my heart. That's between me and God. That's a spiritual sin that you can't. You can't see. Now, some of us just coveting like someone's wife or their car or things. You can cover the, covet their position. You can covet their reputation. You can covet their influence. There's all kinds of things that we can cover. Covet. But coveting is really, a, it's a lack of faith in God. It's a lack of faith in what God has provided to you. Okay, what he's given you, where he's brought you to. Okay, so if I'm constantly grasping after something or grabbing after something that God doesn't want me to have, then there's a problem with me. Okay, because I'm not trusting God with where he's brought me to. And Paul here is talking about Jesus who came as a man. And when he came as a man, he humbled himself and he didn't push himself around. I mean, look, he stood before Herod, he stood before Pilate, he stood before the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he could have said, he could have come in and said, listen, boys, he could have called down angels or done anything. Even when he went to Herod, Herod wanted him to do miracles, and Jesus said, I'm not jumping through your hoops. I didn't come here for this. Jesus humbled himself and accepted the place that God had brought him to. 
And that's something that, that, that I think is key in this passage. Jesus was not grasping after something. And I want us to think just for a minute. And if we were going to throw this out, we could probably come up with many examples. But there are several people in the Bible who did grasp after things that weren't theirs. That they had no right to grasp after. First one we can think of is Eve. Right? He said, don't touch the fruit. She goes, which fruit? Where? Which one? And then she went right after the thing that she wasn't supposed to go after. We know that Jacob, remember Jacob and Esau? Anybody remember what Jacob's name means? Heel grabber, usurper. One who grabs a position that is not rightfully his. Okay? Um, Remember Aaron and Miriam? Remember Moses' brother and sister? And they questioned his position. Who do you think you are? We're just as spiritual as you are. We should be up here too. And God struck her with leprosy and and scared them half to death and finally, you know, restored them. And then when David died and one of his sons, they all knew David was dying. He was an old man. He was on his deathbed and he wasn't even dead yet. And one of David's uh, sons, was it Jehoiakim? Was that his name? One of David's sons presumed upon himself that he was going to take the kingdom and be the next king. He even threw a party and invited all of his friends and set this thing up. And then Nathan the prophet got heard, heard wind of it and says, wait, you said Solomon was going to be your son. And they went to Bathsheba and said, and Bathsheba and Saul, and Nathan said, you told us that Solomon was going to be your son. But see, David's other son was trying to take the kingdom before David even died. So we see time and time in the scripture when people were trying to grasp after something and, and, and covet something and attain to something that they had no right to. And the ultimate one of all, and Bill already alluded to it earlier, was Lucifer, who said, I will ascend to the sides of the north. I will be like the most high. I will take all these things for myself. But when Jesus came as a man, he didn't do any of that. He wasn't pushing himself Forward. And this is where humility comes in. Because society teaches us from the time we're little to compete. Does it not? Right? We compete in sports. We compete in academics. We compete in the arts. I've been a musician all my life. When you go and you do these auditions, you can have these talent shows, these battles of the bands, and you, you try to get in here, or you're trying to get that job, or you're trying to get that girl, or you're trying to get that guy, and it's compete, 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 compete. And if you're raised in MacDowell, like I was, you're taught to fight, you know? And you scratch and claw, and you're going to prove yourself, and you're going to let them know who you are. But that is not the way of Christ. And society teaches us to do this kind of thing, to always outdo the other person, outperform the other person. doesn't matter who you step on as long as you get there. And, you know, Gail in his book, Gail Irwin, if those you don't know, in his book, The Jesus Style, he said, we're all trying so hard to be winners. we got to be winners. But in order to be a winner, i got to make somebody else a loser, right? And God does not want any of us to make other people losers. God doesn't want any of us to make somebody else feel bad less important, less spiritual, less significant, like Bill was talking about earlier. That's not our place, is to outdo people and shame people, which is essentially what we do. So when we want to shine, we want them to be shamed. So, now, we say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to outperform people. I'm just not, I'm not even going to try. That's it. So then, what we, we, then we start to think that, well, I'll just be lazy. I'll just be passive. I won't try. I won't even exert it. Well, that's not that's not any good either. 
right? Then we take then we take pride in how humble we are. You know, we're so humble because I'm I'm above it. I'm not even going to enter that race because I'm above it. I don't want to be like those guys because I'm above it because I'm so humble. It's 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 really it's really a foolish stance to take because what we got to learn to do, if you think about the word meekness, that. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, right? And we're actually going to talk about this a little bit tomorrow in Galatians. Is the word meek means that you keep your emotions in check. That's what it means. That you're balanced. You're not too hot-headed. You're not too excitable. And you're not too passive, right? You're not too discouraged and depressed and downtrodden. Neither are you overly confident. But you're right down the middle somewhere. And you know you're placing God. You know you're a sinner. But you're also saved by grace. You know you don't deserve it, but you've also been born again and filled with the Spirit of Christ. So it's so it's this thing, uh, this balance of saying, yes, I don't deserve to go to heaven, but God's taking me to heaven. How about that? And He's preparing me along the way and equipping me, me along the way so I can bless others along the way so they can go to heaven too. Not so that I can be a winner and they, and they can be a loser, but we can all be winners. We, we, we bring other people with us when we find our place in the Lord and learn how to just... Because what did Christ do? Christ did all this so that He could bring many sons to glory. This is why He did it. He didn't do it just because He wanted to get beaten up and nailed to a cross and humiliated and have His name slandered for the next 2,000 years. He did it so that He could bring many sons to glory. This is why He did these things, right? So... We have to be surrendered to the Lord, but also open to His leading, open to where He has put us, and obedient enough to follow through when God puts us somewhere. Now, verse 7 here says that Jesus made Himself of no reputation. I was listening to a song the other day by an obscure band. That I listen to pretty obscure bands, but... A guy named Michael Gleason has a record, and he's talking about the Western society is singing praises to the self-made man, right? And don't we just love that? Who was that guy? Was it Horatio what, Alger? What's his name? Al- Alger, right. Yeah, the rags-to-riches story. You know, the guy who pulls him up for, self up from his bootstraps, you know. And we, we love to hear about, you know, good old Colonel Sanders or Ray Kroc who started... Wendy's or whatever, you know. and these guys they start with nothing and they become a millionaire. We just we just love that, right? And and we we praise people when they can make themselves into something, but we're not to make ourselves into anything. And Jesus didn't make himself to have this great reputation. He didn't elevate himself. He wasn't manufacturing or striving anything. But we all can fall into this trap of trying to prove ourselves, can't we? Especially if we started in a rough situation. Maybe, you know, maybe people look down on our family. Guys, I was a high school dropout. You knew that. You know? And, you know, and, and you come out in a situation where maybe people, you know, the, your family's not the best or whatever, and you say, well, I'm going to show them. I'm going to prove them. You know? Everybody thinks you're a loser, and you're going to prove that you're not. And you, you kind of overcompensate and overtry to prove yourself instead of depending on God to let Him put you where you want to be. So Jesus didn't make himself uh, of, of some reputation. But, but, this, but sometimes we just do the opposite of what Jesus did, don't we? We make a reputation for ourselves. Isn't it so easy to boast? 
and we'll boast about the least little things. Oh, yeah, well, I went over there on vacation, you know. Oh, yeah, well, I had one of those. I had three of those, you know. Or, or, you know and and we, we boast about this accomplishment we did or this thing we purchased or who we know or where we've been. Or somebody tells a story and we tell us, so we're going to beat that story. You ever know people that just have to one-up everybody? You ever know that? Aren't those people annoying? Have you ever been that person? I have, and it's annoying. And I, you know, and I catch myself doing it. I go, oh, man, why am I doing this? Why, why do I have to do this? You know, why do I have to feel like I have to one-up other people? So, so we do this, and we want people to be impressed with what we've acquired or what we've done. You know, or sometimes in church we want to appear more spiritual, right? Even appear more spiritual by being more humble, being more exuberant. More, you know, more anointed, more Bible knowledge, you know, or, or accomplished this, or went on a mission trip, or, or this, or this, or this, or this. And we, but Jesus didn't do any of those things. He even said, when he was talking to people, he said, if I tell you earthly things and you don't get it, like with the weather, or about the plants or the trees, how are you ever going to get it if I tell you heavenly things? If Jesus wanted to blow them away, he could have done it easily. But he didn't, and he did not make himself of some great reputation. Even the people that he hung out with, the fishermen. He didn't go down to Jerusalem and pick his disciples out from among the Sanhedrin. He didn't go to Herod's court and pick out a group of Sadducees and and rich, influential people. He went over here and got these crummy fishermen who were always working on their nets that were always breaking. He didn't even have good gear, you know. These are the people that he collected, guys that would, would cuss and pull weapons, like Peter, you know? People that would cheat, like Judas. And those are the people that Jesus picked and took. So Jesus, even his crowd that he ran away with, was not something that would build Jesus a great reputation, you know? His mother, they questioned her purity, you know? They said, isn't this a carpenter's son? You know, they, he, he wasn't someone that was impressive, and because he was not impressive in that earthly way, everybody could relate to him. And the little kids would come to him and climb on him. You ever think about that? He didn't shoo them away. He wasn't stiff and uptight and grouchy. You know, little kids don't grou- like grouchy people, right? Or they don't like people that are aloof and cold. They like people that are fun, right? I think Jesus was probably fun. He'd probably play around the kids and laughing with them and that. Kind of thing. When he says he blessed the children, I don't think he sprinkled holy water on them or something. He probably just said, oh, what a pretty baby. He probably held it. Oh, this oh, is beautiful. Oh, I love your baby's name. I bet this, this child is going to do wonderful things. I can just tell he was a good-looking baby, you know. And mama's just never going, oh, you know, just so excited because Jesus is saying great things about this child. So he, he wasn't one who would, who would alienate himself from other. He didn't try to promote himself. He didn't have this great ambition about things. Uh, you know, it says, prophesies of him, it says, he would not lift up his voice and cry, neither was his voice heard in the streets. Jesus didn't do things to get attention to himself. Again, when they wanted him to do miracles, he said, no. No, that's not what I'm here for, to show off for you. What sign will you do? You know, that we might believe. And they're still picking the fish out of their teeth when they're saying it. Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. Can you do that? And Jesus said, it wasn't Moses that gave you the manna. It was my Father in heaven that gave you the wilderness. So so he he wasn't about to try to please these people just to impress them. Now, and in fact, when 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 we talk about Jesus and reputation, he actually rebuked the Pharisees in Matthew 23. 
He rebuked those guys because they were all about reputation. They loved the best seats in the synagogues. They loved the greetings in the marketplace. By the way, the marketplace means the business world. They wanted to be recognized in secular society. They wanted to be the big shots in town. They wanted to be the ones that everybody was connected to. They loved the chief greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and to have titles like rabbi, rabbi, and, you know, most right reverend, doctor, PhD, MDiv, whatever. They wanted recognition for everything. And Jesus rebuked them for that and said, woe to you. Woe to you guys. All you're doing is alienating people. Nobody wants to be like you. Nobody wants to listen to you. He said, you go across land and sea to make one convert. And when you do, he's twice the child of hell that you are. Worse than you are. He said you bind up burdens on men's backs because you act so spiritual and so religious that nobody could ever live up to your standard because you're always elevating yourself as being this high and mighty holy thing. And nobody could ever be like you. And we've probably all known Christians in this world that were so religious that we couldn't relate to them. You ever know people like that? You didn't even want to be around them. You felt like, I can't even talk to this person. But when you see Jesus... The little kids talk to him, and the widows, and the, the lepers, and the drunks, and the hookers would come to him and cry on his feet and and welcome him into their homes. And they, uh, it always used to amaze me that they would say, "Why does your master eat with sinners?" And I always thought, "Why do the sinners eat with Jesus?" That's always what blew me away. I don't get invited to drunk parties. I know, because everybody knows I'm a preacher, right? And it kind of blows me away that Jesus had such an appeal that he didn't turn people off because he didn't elevate himself. He didn't exalt himself. He humbled himself, okay? Now, it says here that he also, in verse 7, that he took the form of a bond servant. Now, most of us, that doesn't mean a whole lot unless you've read your Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 20, you know you've got the Ten Commandments, right? Now, the very next thing that is taught in the law of Moses after the Ten Commandments is the doctrine of the bondservant. Very next thing. is, And I believe the Holy Spirit ordained this and ordered this this way because you've got... You've got the Ten Commandments, and then you've got the, the law of the bondservant. This is the law of the bondservant. I'm going to read you uh, just a few verses, six verses out of Exodus 21. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, now, the, the, or you can insert the word slave. Slavery was not mandatory back then. It wasn't like you read about Uncle Tom's Cabin or the American Civil War or any of that stuff. This was a way of paying off debts, okay? You couldn't pay your debts. You were bankrupt. Somebody buys you as a servant, you work for them. You are their servant, okay? And that's how it worked. Now listen how it goes. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, the servant says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. 
he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, with a tool, and he shall serve him forever. So this is the bond servant is the one. The master got him out of debt. Now you can see the picture of the gospel right here. Here's a man who can't pay his debt. A rich man says, I'll pay your debt, but you're going to be my, my servant. Now the servant has the choice. He can go free after six years if he wants to. But if after the end of those six years, this guy says, I never had it so good. I love my master. It doesn't say I hate him and I want to get away from him. It says I love him and I want to stay. I never had it so good. I stay here willingly. Then they would take him. They would mark him by piercing his ear. And he would be that man's servant. Okay. So he says that Jesus took the form of a bond servant. One who serves his master because of love. I hope nobody in this room is serving Jesus just because you're scared not to. Because that's not love. That's not love. We serve Jesus because Jesus paid the debt we could not owe, as the song says. He purchased our freedom. He purchased us. And we never had it so good. We never had it so good. We should never want to leave him and go back to the thing that actually brought us into bondage in the first place. So it says that Jesus took this form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, It says he came in the likeness of men because Jesus was God with us. We know that. His name is called Emmanuel. But he looked like people. He looked like men. And he he looked much like everybody else. You know, when you think about it, we we don't like to think about it, but, you know, Jesus would get hungry and and tired and, you know, have to go to the bathroom like everybody else, you know. The night that they came to arrest him, they didn't even know which one he was because he looked like just the rest of that crew that he was with. Right? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And they didn't know who he was. Gail Irwin says that uh, they didn't say, get the one with the halo. That's him. He's, you know, that's, that's the guy, the one with the halo. But Jesus looked just like the rest of those guys. And they didn't even know who he was. He came in the form of, of and it came in appearance as a man. And verse 8, it says, and being found in appearance as a man, even though he was much, much more than he appeared to be. You ever think about that? Jesus was much, much more than he appeared to be. Because they would say, well, this is a carpenter's son, or isn't this, you know, Mary and Joseph's son? We know who this guy is, but they didn't know who he was. John 13 is one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament. It's where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, right? And it starts out saying, in this chapter, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. Jesus could do what he did because he knew he had come from God. He knew who he was. He knew where he was going. And he knew what he was about. And a lot of us in church, we don't know what we're doing because we forget that. We talk... Who was it this morning at breakfast? I forgot. We, we, Ivan, we were talking this morning about how that David forgot his calling. Remember when David said, surely Saul's going to kill me. And he, wrote, and he goes down to Ziklag and he's, you know, he's working with the Philistines and all this stuff. And, and listen, Samuel had anointed him and said, you're going to be the king of Israel. His own wife, Michal, said, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Jonathan, the, uh, Saul's son said, you're going to be the son of, you're the king of Israel, not me. Right? All these people, even King Saul, when 
David confronted him in the cave out there in Engedi. Saul even said, you will be the king of Israel. Okay? So, but everybody had told David this, and David forgot it. David forgot it. He had all this witness. And some of us, we forget where we've come from, who has called us, who has purchased us. And when that happens, then we humble ourselves, and we can do whatever it is God has given us to do. We can do it. And we can do it not with boasting and not with pride with pride but just like jesus who washed their feet we can do the things with humility now you know anytime jesus could have said don't you guys know who i am and there were a couple times when he he said things like i saw satan fall from heaven like lightning you know and he indicated guys i know you know i've come from the father he told them clearly i have come from the father and they didn't receive it. But Jesus didn't push that on anybody. He was he kind of kept it under wraps or under cover, if you will. And he was so much more than he ever appeared to be. But verse 8 here, this is what uh, Bill talked about earlier this morning. Is he humbled himself and became obedient the point, to the point of death. When we humble ourselves, guys, and this is tough. And it's not easy for me either. We accept the place that God has brought us to. There's probably not a one of us in this room that doesn't every once in a while, even now, say, I wish I was somewhere else. Or I wish I had something else. Or I wish I hadn't made that decision. Maybe I wouldn't be here now. Or, 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 or I wish I could do something different. I wish things were different for me. But there's, but there's a part in walking with the Lord where we have to just accept the place that God has brought us to. And Jesus accepted his lot. He knew he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified. He told his disciples many times, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be put to death. He knew all these things, and he accepted it. He didn't try to get out of it. How many times do we, me, we try to get out of trouble. We try to get out of difficulty instead of saying, God, did you bring me here? God, what will you teach me here? What will you teach me in this new job, this new relationship, this new church, this new uh, situation that I'm in? What can you teach me? Even through this new trial, how, what will you teach me with this? Don McClure told the story of how that, you know, he was losing his eyesight. He had a stroke in one of his eyes. And, and the doctor said, you're going to lose your eyesight. You're going to go blind in that eye. And, and you know, and, and he, he, he prayed about it, and, and, and he felt like, well, you know, this is something that Jesus is leading me through. It's not going to change. I'm not going to get my eyesight back. But I have to go through this with the Lord. So, you know, it's, we all get all. Some of you guys are younger. Some of us are older. We go through the season. We just have to accept. This is the season we're in. You know, the, the, the psalm clearly says... The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. So God, God, God leads us into things, and God directs us into things. It's not all good. It's not all pleasant. But that doesn't mean that God can't use it. And even when Jesus went to this cross and he went to this, this point of death, you know, he prayed that night and said, Father, if it's possible, if it's possible, get me out of here. But he said, nevertheless... Not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus accepted that. And that's why he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. But again, many of us, we, you know, we, 
we've, we face a situation and we'd rather not be there. And But Jesus accepted this. You know, he was humiliated. He was, he was, he was tortured to death very, very painfully. And even today, he's still hated. You know, it was, it was a shameful thing for him to go through this. It was a shameful thing for him, for him to do this. Now, I think one of the things that we need to remember that, you know, as Paul is writing all this, Paul is practicing it. Paul's in prison for the sake of Christ. I don't know if anybody here has ever been in jail or, or in prison, but, but I, I personally I have not. I've had very, very dear people that I know that have, that have died in prison, in penitentiary. You know, the, and, and, and it's not a pleasant thing to think about or, or talk about. It's not something that you want everybody to even know about if it's someone in your family or something. You know, So Paul is, even though he's doing this for the sake of Christ, as far as the society was concerned, he's just another criminal. He's just another inmate. He's just another dude behind bars, you know. And so Paul is even living through these things himself. So I think that when the Lord leads us, and the, the, the truth is, most of us are not probably... Of course, I believe we're getting closer in the last days, and we don't know what could happen. I'm certainly not wanting to be a fearmonger nor a sensationalist. I try to avoid that at all costs. Most of us probably are not going to have to suffer real severe hardship for our faith unless something changes drastically. But we will all go through situations that we don't like and we don't want that we could even resist and try to get out of. But will we humble ourselves? And even something as simple as being rebuked by a brother or sister or being corrected by a pastor or being, you know, hearing some teaching that might really challenge us to want a deeper walk with the Lord and a closer walk with God instead of just business as usual and just carrying on and, you know, watching the games or listening to the bands or just, you know, spending our money however we choose. But really walking with Christ in such a way that we're listening for his voice and wanting to walk in the calling that he has for us. So Jesus humbled himself this was god's will for him and he had a very unique call because he is the lamb of god who gave himself for the sins of the world he is the messiah he is the god in the flesh i mean there are many things about the life of jesus that you and i can never fulfill but there are but there are other things in the life of jesus that you and i could represent and reflect and part of it is just being obedient to the will of god for what god brings us to in this life i want to read a uh, an excerpt from Oswald Chambers I've been reading ever since I was about 25 years old. His Devo, uh, My Utmost for His Highest. But there's an intro from uh, November 5th where he says this. Are you willing to be offered for the work of the faithful? I mean, for, for other people? Look, we, we, we all want to be saved and sanctified and filled with the Spirit and rejoice in, in our walk, right? But how many of us consider, just like Paul here, that God does that for the sake of someone else? Someone else, just listen to this. Someone else needs to see you suffer. Because they need to see what it looks like. They need to see that. And God might choose to use one of us to be that for someone else. I had a dear, dear friend, y'all, my friend Jeff, many, many of y'all knew him. And, and he went to be with the Lord a few years ago. And I never saw someone so faithfully walk out this situation where he was literally dying, knew he was going to die, and so faithful, a 
to the end. His witness, his testimony, he finished well. And you know, I, I really believe that every one of us wants to be that so that if God chooses that path for one of us, that other people, whether they be believers or unbelievers or, or whoever, can watch us walk out our, our walk with the Lord and say, I want that. I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of walk. And if, and if it be God's will for that to happen in my life, then, then how can I argue if it's God's will? Let me get back here to, to Chambers for a minute. He says, are you willing to be offered for the work of the faithful, meaning other faithful people, to pour out your lifeblood as a libation or an offering on the sacrifice of the faith of others? Or do you say, I'm not going to be offered up just yet. I do not want God to choose my work. I want to choose the scenery of my own sacrifice. I want to have the right kind of people watching and saying, well done. Ouch, ouch, ouch. We all want to look good as we serve the Lord. But Jesus did not look good hanging on that cross. And Paul didn't look good sitting in a prison. And and the disciples didn't look good when they were beaten and arrested. You know, it, it, it looks bad. <laughs> Paul looked bad here and Jesus looked bad. But if it's God's will, or do we care about what people see or what the Lord sees? And we want to be faithful with this. There's another... Um, I had another short excerpt, and I won't read any more chambers, I promise, but I knew that there were a couple of things I wanted to tie together. Here's another one from him from September 30th's entry. He says, This call has nothing to do with personal sanctification, but with being made broken bread and poured out wine. You and I are being made broken bread and poured out wine for other people. God can never make us wine if we object to the fingers he uses to crush us with. If God would only use his own fingers and make me broken bread and poured out wine in a special way, but when he uses someone whom we dislike, our boss, our neighbors, our relatives, our family, or some set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit and makes those the crushers, we object. We must never choose the scene of our own martyrdom. We are the servants of the Lord. Then we say, God, you lead me. You show me where you want me to be. And help me to accept that as your will for me If, as this is your plan. There's a little booklet I recommend. It's by a man. If you're taking notes, a man's name is Kevin DeYoung. D-E-Y-O-U-N-G. DeYoung. The book is called Just Do Something. It's about as thick as my little finger. And the book is about accepting God's will in the circumstances in your life. Instead of always looking for something else, accept that this is God's will. You know, whether it's your job, your relations, whatever, it, it just you 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 go where God leads. You get in your car in the morning and you say, Lord, lead me today, and trust that He is leading you. The people you meet, the job you take, wherever you go, you you knock on nine doors to get a job, and one of them opens. Well, that's it. Because you need a job, just take it and go and, and run with it, right? But uh, that's that's a really good little book that I recommend to people. So just to kind of top this off here to remember, Paul is writing this from a prison cell. If anybody was having to be humbled, Paul was being humbled here. He's not fighting. He's resisting. In fact, he is saying, I don't want you people to be discouraged about the situation I'm in. I want you to be encouraged. I am Christ's prisoner, and we are following his example. So... You know, other people, sometimes they're going to 
we don't know how they're going to look at us or how they're going to see us. That doesn't matter. It really, really doesn't matter. It matters how does Christ see us and how are we following his example. So this obedience to the point of a cross, you know what the cross means, don't you? It means death to self. It means we put away what we want. What we want is not so important. And we all have our preferences. We all have our likes. We all have dreams and goals. And, and you know, and sometimes God uses those dreams and goals. We have a, a, a dear brother in our, in our church. He's a, he's a medical doctor, tremendous doctor, loves the Lord. He's one of our elders in our church. And, you know, if he hadn't followed his dreams and goals and giftings to be a doctor, he wouldn't bless all kinds of people. And he heals people and takes care of folks and he gives to the ministry and and his his dream of being a music being a a physician is something that god used and his gifting pastor john's art gifts it opens up doors and gets to talk to people and, and they go oh you're a pastor too and you get to do that or you're, you're on your job and they know you're a pastor or you're in your neighborhood or wherever you are so sometimes i think when when we talk about self-denial and the cross we, we think well i just got to go be a hermit somewhere you know I'm going to go live in a cave and grow a long beard. You guys ever heard of Simon Stylites? These pastors ever tell you about Simon Stylites? You ever heard of him? He was called Simon the pole sitter. He wanted to show how spiritual and holy he was to get away from the world and just remove himself from everything. And he sat on a pole 50 feet in the air for 37 years. That's crazy. That's just crazy. It doesn't make you holy. It makes you weird. Right? That's all it is. It's weird. I want to be like that guy. No, I don't. And nobody wants to be like that guy. But we accept. We're now. Paul had a special and unique calling. Paul was in prison, but God told Paul, "I'm going to make you a witness to the Gentiles. You're going to do these things, and this is your special and unique calling." But every one of us has to be willing to say, "Lord, I'm willing to lay down my reputation." We talked about that. I'm willing to not worry if people don't respect me or don't like me. If they don't like us because we're being a jerk, that's our problem. That's probably, that can be a sin and a stumbling block. Or because we're so, uh, like Bill mentioned earlier, we so want attention, and we can all fall into that. We want attention. We want affirmation. We want people to notice us and like us and see us and think we're clever or think we're spiritual or think we're funny or, or, or think we're this or this or that or successful or whatever. All this stuff's just going to go. So we can be approachable to people, humble ourselves, just like Paul did, like Jesus did, because Jesus is saying, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Jesus humbled himself. He was obedient even to the point of a cross. And we and Jesus said there's no other way. There's no other way. Guys, the churches are full of people, Christians, pastors, worship leaders, Sunday school teachers, elders, deacons, who we all struggle with this. I struggle with it. I want to be liked. I want people to think I'm okay. I want people to think I'm cool or successful or whatever. We, we all struggle with that. But when it comes down to it, we need to just humble ourselves and say, I'm no better than anybody else. I'm not any smarter or spiritual or anything than anybody else. We're just trying to be an example of Jesus to others so we can be approachable. And we can let other people know God wants to save them too. We're not better. 
We're not, Paul didn't say I'm better than you guys, ever. What did he call himself? The chief of sinners. You think of that. Here's a guy that writes two-thirds of the New Testament. He has visions, miracles, everything else. And he says, I'm the chief of sinners. He didn't, he didn't puff himself up. He didn't make himself of a reputation. Because he wanted other people to come to the Lord as well. And, and this, is, this is something we all strive to live up to for, for, for the rest of our lives. For the rest of our lives. Right? We want Christ to be glorified in us. When, you know, when Paul wrote, and, and a lot of his letters overlap, but when he wrote Galatians, he said that the Lord called me so that Christ may be revealed in me. He didn't say Christ called me to write the Bible or get beat up, you know, or, or make great speeches or plant churches or any of that. He said, God called me so that Christ may be revealed in me. That's your call. Fundamentally, that is your call. On your job, your family, in your church, Christ be revealed in you. Other people see Jesus Christ in you. They see Jesus. Not some weird, strange idea of Jesus. Like they get off, you know, the, there's a, every time a Christian's on the news, they're always crazy, you know, they're always doing something weird. But your neighbors want to really see Christ. They will say, that guy's the real deal. She's the real deal. I know she loves the Lord, and I know she loves me and cares about me as a person. If they can see that, if they can see Christ revealed in us, that's when we've humbled ourselves and said, Lord, you use me. Not your will. Not, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. And if I have to die to any of this stuff, then just let me do it. Father, thank you for this time together. I pray that your words reach our hearts. And I pray that we can live out these things that are so easy to talk about and so much tougher to walk out. I pray for anyone here, Lord, that you've shown them anything that we just need to be careful with. Sometimes, Lord, it's our words and our actions and all these things that just can get in the way and be a hindrance, Lord, when people want to see Christ. And they need to. People are hungry. People are thirsty. People are confused. People are hurting. People are afraid in these days. They, they even come and say, Pastor, could we be in the last days? Is something going on here? What's, what's happening here? Lord, let us in a real way represent you so they can find you and that we not get in the way. Lord, I thank you for this gathering of people and I thank you for this precious church here in West Virginia, old friends and new friends, and we just pray that we would have the mind of Christ by taking the time to seek you, Lord, to have our minds renewed by your word, by pulling away from the foolish and superfluous and frivolous things that the world tries to sell us every day that just really don't profit anything. Lord, help us to listen to each other. Help us love one another. Help us to be real with each other. And thank you again for calling us to yourself. We never deserved it. Still don't deserve it. But we sure are glad you did. And help us let other people know that you love them too. And you want them at your table. So we thank you for all these things. In the name of your dear son Jesus that makes it all possible. We just praise you, Lord, for reminding us always of your great love and your desire to change us on a continual basis to change us daily.
And we thank you again, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Chris. I hope everybody's enjoyed our uh, retreat.